We started a series of messages last week talking about church, and we were asking the big questions about church. Uh, what is it? What is church? And we talked about last week that church is um, not what we generally think of when we think of church. It's not a building. It's not even just a group of people together. It's not even a group of people together talking about the Bible. That the church, as spoken by Jesus, what he meant was a group of people called out of society for a specific purpose. And that purpose was to carry the message about Jesus and his death and resurrection to the world. We talked about Acts 1-8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That that was the idea, that he was going to call us out and move us forward. In fact, we talked about the fact that churches are not supposed to be stationary, but that they're supposed to be moving. That it's not supposed to be about an institution or stability. It's supposed to be about a movement of God. It's supposed to be all about motion. And so last week we started this series asking that basic question, what is church? And this week we want to ask a second basic question. Not just what is church, but who is church for? Who is church designed for? Now, generally in history, there have been two answers to that question. Growing up, I was part of a church that we didn't say it, but we kind of lived it, that church was for church people. And we said it because we had certain sayings and certain rituals and certain traditions that if you weren't a part of our church, you would have seemed out of place and it would have seemed weird to you even. In fact, when I, uh, when I started pastoring, I started pastoring in Ripley, Tennessee and I went to First Baptist Ripley and I went in August and about, um, November, one of the members came up to me and said, are you going to reinstitute the real white Christmas? And I said, you like the Bing Crosby song? I mean, what do we... He goes, no, no, we have white Christmas here. And I said, what do you mean by white Christmas? And he said, well, what, what it is is um, we get a flocked Christmas tree. You know what a flocked Christmas tree is? White Christmas tree that stood to the ceiling. And you have to understand, Ripley's ceiling is higher than this one. Okay? It was huge. It, you, we could not sit people in the first 14 rows when we had that tree. Actually, only the first three. All right? And, so, and then everybody brought canned goods wrapped in white paper with a red ribbon on it. Okay? And they put them on the tree. And the ministers all wore white tuxes with red bow tie and cummerbund. And when that was mentioned, I said, no, we are not bringing back the white Christmas tradition. And so we, we, and there was actually some spiritual meaning, but can you imagine if it was your first day to walk into a church and you walked in on white Christmas and the preacher's in a white tux and everybody's bringing, well, we didn't know we had to bring white wrapped things and there's a huge, you know, I mean, it was just weird, all right? But everybody there, oh, I cannot have Christmas until we have white Christmas. Well, we're not having white Christmas, so I hope you have enjoyed the last Christmas as you've had. It was this culture. In fact, in the church I grew up in, church was really for church people who acted like church people. And that was determined by church people. And it changed. Every few years it kind of changed when new people got there and they kind of said, well, church, you, church people don't do that anymore. 
We dress a certain way and we talk a certain way and we act a certain way and we carry ourselves in a certain way. In fact, some of you may have been part of churches like that growing up or maybe you tried to go to church growing up and that was what you met with and it was kind of, ah, it's not for me. There's this one group that says, hey, listen, church is for church people that act like church people. And then there's another group that says, no, 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 church is for anybody. We don't care what you believe or what you do or how you act or what you look like or what you say. We just want anybody and everybody to come be a part. So there's those that say it's for church people that act like it and those that say, no, it's for anybody. But the truth is, the Bible kind of splits the difference. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 15. If you don't have your Bibles, don't worry. Most of the the things are going to be on the screen today. But we're going to talk in a story out of the book of Acts. Now, the book of Acts is one of those books that people don't read a whole lot. We know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know some of the letters. But if you're not a Bible student, you're not somebody that reads the Bible a lot, you may not read there. But it's the story of the early church. And Acts 15 is a turning point. It is almost in the center of Acts. It's, Acts has 28 chapters, so it's almost in the center of Acts. But it is a turning point in the history of Christianity. Now, let me just kind of get you up to date from where we were last week. If you were here last week, we talked about the birth of the church, the beginning of the church, the explosion that happened in Jerusalem on the first day, 3,000 people. Within a week, 5,000 men plus women and children. It had become this multi um, faceted mega church, if you will, all around in the place. And so you had these people that were going out telling others about Jesus. Well, it was stationed primarily in Jerusalem to start with, and things started to happen. They had their first hypocrites. I know that's kind of crazy to think about, you know, hypocrites in the church. But it was back then, a guy's, a, a, a husband and wife came in and said, hey, we, uh, we sold everything we have and we're giving it all to the church. The problem was they weren't giving it all to the church, right? And so they dealt with them and told them, don't do that anymore. Is that what happened? No, what happened to them? They, they're dead, right? So they died. So the Hearst hypocrites died, and no hypocrites have ever existed in the history of the church since, okay? So that happened, and then there was this little controversy because um, some of the widows were getting more food than other widows, and somebody was calling the church office and asking why the pastors weren't coming and visiting over there or bringing food to that place, and, you know, it just happened, that kind of thing was going on, and so you had all those kind of issues happening, and they got together, and they said, well, we're going to elect some deacons, and we're going to take care of that, and so the deacons went out, and they served the widows, and the apostles kept teaching, and all that kind of moved forward. You had Stephen, who was stoned, the leader of the church. You had people start to tell other people about it. And then in Acts chapter 9, this guy's walking down the road, the light blinds him, and he becomes a believer. His name is Paul, is his name, all right? Even if you're not grown up in church or not a big Bible reader, you may have heard of the Apostle Paul. Paul starts to follow Jesus, and Paul has this crazy idea that he is actually going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. In fact, this is a little trivia for you, this little extra for today. The phrase ends of the earth actually referred to a place in Spain. All right? I mean, I know that's what you think of when you hear ends of the earth, Spain. But in their idea, the farthest place you could go was Spain. Remember, this is before Christopher Columbus. They didn't know about the New World, all that. And so Paul made it his life mission to get to Spain. He took what Jesus said literally. I'm going to the end of the earth. All right. So Paul gets out and for a year or two, he starts planting churches all around the Mediterranean Sea and has conflict and gets in trouble and all kinds of things are happening. And, and there developed this 
this kind of routine where Paul would go into a city, he would find some people that were Jewish, he would talk to them about Jesus, they would set up a group of people that were called out of society for the purpose of telling other people about Jesus or church, and then other people would start to join and Paul would move on. People would come in after him. And Paul basically said, all you have to do is believe in Jesus. That's all you have to do. Believe in Jesus, his death, his resurrection, that he died for your sins, and you're good. There would be people that would come along after him and go, wait, wait, wait. Paul gave you part of the story. Yeah, believing in Jesus is good. But before you can believe in Jesus, there are some things you've got to take care of. Like becoming a Jew. You can't be a Christian until you're a Jew. And so, that's going to mean some things. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, we'll see it on the screen here. Um, this first verse was telling people about it. And I want to apologize on the front end for the Bible, talking about something. We're going to have to talk about something that probably doesn't seem kosher in church or good in church, but, you know... The Bible was written before we made rules about what we could and couldn't talk about in church. So, uh, Acts 15.1 says, Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers. Now, here, the brothers means wide brothers and sisters, but this message particularly pertained to the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. That's kind of a big unless, Right? Guys, right? That's kind of a big unless, all right? I mean, Paul would say, all you have to do, come here, guys, listen, all you got to do is believe in Jesus. When you believe in Jesus, you can be a follower of the way. You can follow him. You can be part of the church. It's amazing. And he leaves, and these other guys go, Paul, Paul was partly right. You've got to have a little surgery. And you've got to become a Jew. Then you can accept Jesus. Someone said, that's why all the new members classes in the early church were women and children. And guys were not signing up for that, all right? But, I mean, that's a major thing. I mean, we kind of make light of it, but th- that's a major unless. And the guys were going, I don't, I, Paul, I don't know, Paul said it was just, uh, just believing in Jesus. And now you're saying, no, no, you do have to believe in Jesus. And that's all that it takes once you become a Jew. Verse 2, but after Paul and Barnabas, and I loved how the Bible kind of says this, had engaged them in serious argument and debate. So Paul and Barnabas are like, that is not right. And they go to their face and they confront him. In fact, there is a place in the Bible where it says, Paul said about Peter, I confronted him to his face. This is Peter, the leader of the church, all right? So he says, they arranged for Paul and Barnabas and some others of them to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem concerning this controversy. So we have our first full-blown controversy about the early church. And guess what it's about? Who can come? Who can be a part? Who's okay to be a part of this church? goes on in verse 3. Or verse 4. We'll skip verse 3. When they arrived at Jerusalem, that's Paul and Barnabas, They were welcomed by the church. Wow, we've heard great things. The apostles and the elders. 
And they started to tell him everything that had gone on that God had done with them. Like, man, you're not going to believe this. We were down in this place. We are over in Antioch. And in Antioch, man, things are just blowing up in Antioch. We talked to these people. They accepted Christ. They told people who accepted Christ. People were coming out of the woodwork. We didn't know where they were coming. People that had never even thought about anything that we were talking about were coming. And suddenly there was revival. You were not going to believe what's happening. But it's not just in Antioch. It is amazing. In Ephesus, there's some amazing things going on in Ephesus. You've got to hear what's happening over there. And it's not just there. There's, there's some rumors of things that are starting in smart. It's amazing. Everybody hears them. The apostles, the elders are like, man, that's amazing. That's awesome. And then the cold water committee shows up. You know the cold water committee, right? Yeah, some of you have witnessed that. Some of you may have been a part of it. It's where we get a good idea for the Lord. Oh, yeah, but wait. Have you thought about? Verse 5 says, But some of the believers from the party of the Pharisees stood up. Now, let's talk about that for just a second. In the New Testament, when you hear the word Pharisee, what do you think of? The law. Bad. Boo. Right? They're the bad guys. When they show up in a story, they are the bad guys. Right? Well, here's what's amazing. The Pharisees were part of the group of people that did their best to get Jesus crucified. And after Jesus had been crucified, and then they heard reports of him raising from the dead, some of the Pharisees went, you know what? We may have made a mistake. He may have been the Messiah. And so some of the Pharisees started to follow Jesus. There's that old saying, some of you know it. You can take the Pharisee out of the law, but you can't take the law out of the Pharisee. You know that one? Okay, maybe not. All right. But they kept going back. Remember the Pharisees, they were the one that says, this is what you have to do to keep the law. This and this and this and this. Can't veer from it. So they come to Christ. They start following Jesus. And that old nature is still kind of there. It's like Howard Hendricks. Howard Hendricks is a guy that used to teach down at Dallas Theological Seminary. And Howard said that he grew up in a legalistic home. Now, some of you may say, well, I grew up in a legalistic home. In Howard's home, if the females put fingernail polish on, they were going to the not good place. All right? I grew up in a home, my grandmother was very strict. If you brought in any box with the words Hoyle or Bicycle on them and started to play Go Fish or solitaire, you were thrown out of my grandmother's house. Anybody have a grandmother like that? Don't point at them, please. All right. My granny, Granny Nail was her name. Granny Nail could give you the finger. That, that sounded bad. I mean, you give, you know, this one. All right, this one. I could point at you and, uh, and could really make you feel like I have not. Well, Howard Hendricks said, I got out of that when I accepted Christ. And I have been fighting it in my own life ever since. And the Pharisees were like, wait a minute, that sounds great, Paul, you're great. Hey, we just want to make sure of something real quick, okay? You did tell these people that they had to get circumcised and they had to keep the law of Moses, right? I mean, we just want to make sure that we're all on the up and up here. We don't want anybody giving away this salvation too easily. We don't want anybody believing in Jesus and not really believing in Jesus because that would be horrible. And so we just want to make sure you are telling them they've got to get circumcised and they've got to keep the law of Moses. Now, when I say the law of Moses, what do you think of? Ten Commandments, right? There's ten of those. We like those. We may not keep them, but we like them, right? That's not what he's talking about. That's not what the Pharisees are talking about. They're talking about the law. You know Leviticus, that 
book that you do your devotionals in every morning. Right? We're talking about the law. We're talking about somebody has calculated somewhere around 612 laws they have to keep. So it says, you are telling them before they can accept Jesus. Paul, we, we know. All you have to do is believe in Jesus. But you did tell them they have to become Jews first. So they've got to get circumcised, a little surgery issue. And they've got to keep these 612 laws. Which only means that they have to change everything about the way they eat, sleep, dress, walk, talk. Just, you know, basically everything. We're talking major changes. I had bacon last night. Anybody like bacon? Amen. No bacon anymore. If you want to be a believer in Jesus, all you can do is believe in Jesus, but you've got to give up bacon first. That's, a, that's like a deal breaker, right? I'm half kidding there, right? What you're wearing, oh, you can never wear that. Oh, the way where you go, like the people you talk to, oh, you can't hang out with those either. Change everything about what you are. Then all you have to do is believe in Jesus. Are we glad the church doesn't do that today? Change how you dress and how you look and what you say and how you live and who you're friends with. And Hey, by the way, yeah, just believe in Jesus. Plus, there are a few more things you need to take care of over here. 612 laws. Verse 6. Then the apostles and the elders assembled to consider the matter. So they get together. They decide, you know what, we're going to figure out what's going on. This is a big deal. We've got to set it up. We've got to get going. We've got to figure out what's going on. We'll go on, John, the next one. After there had been much debate, Peter, remember Peter, right? Kind of one of the leaders of the church, stood up and he said, Hey, brothers, <laughs> hey, hey, you may be aware of this, but some of you remember the early days of the church. You know, I mean, like, like 10, 15 years ago. You remember that? There was this moment back then when um, God made a choice that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the message and believe it. I don't know if y'all remember this, but there's this little story back a few chapters ago. Um, of course, they didn't have the Bible. But back a few years ago, when I was sitting on a rooftop, I was taking a little nap. And suddenly in my dreams, there were all these foods that I couldn't eat. And these things that had been told to me since I was a child that you could never, ever, ever eat them ever, ever again. Or for the first time. And you remember that, that it was this kind of crazy thing. Because then the sheet came down and all that food was there. And God said, rise up, Peter, and eat. And I said... No. No, no, Peter, it's okay. Go, you can go eat. You can go eat the bacon. It's okay. No. God, God, I don't think you understand. You're telling me to do what you said not to do. Well, now I'm telling you to do this, and you're not doing what I tell you to do. Go eat. And Peter went to the house of this guy named Cornelius, and the whole family accepted the Lord. And Peter apparently didn't make them get circumcised or follow the law. Peter goes on in verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them by giving the Holy Spirit just as He also did to us. We know appearances. We know actions. God knows the heart. Here's the truth. I'm standing before you today and I'm wearing what some people would deem an appropriate outfit to wear when you're preaching in a church. 
And I'm speaking words that seem appropriate words to be spoken by somebody preaching in a church. And I seem to be using the mannerisms and the tactics that seem appropriate for someone who is preaching in a church. But the truth is, all you see are the outward appearances. And I could be standing before you today and my heart is a thousand miles from here. And you don't know. But who knows? God does. We have people in this church that walk in every week that look the part, talk the part, act the part, but their heart anywhere near the Lord. And at the same time, there are people that will walk into these doors who don't look the part, act the part, dress the part, and whose heart is completely devoted to Him. And here's the thing as a church. It's real easy to judge by outward appearances because all we see is the outward appearance. Can I tell you something? If you're here and you're not a part of a church, or you've been away from the church for a little while, or you've got things going on and you're skeptical of the church, I actually had a church member message me this week and say, hey, I just brought up your what we're talking about, about the church at work, and you wouldn't believe the discussion that came out of that. People that are just mad at the church. Can I tell you something? God's not concerned about your view of the church. He's concerned about your heart. Church people, he's not concerned about if we've got everything that looks like a church. He's concerned about our heart. And what Peter was saying is, it doesn't matter what outward appearances are. God knows the heart. And he testified that these people were okay because he gave them the Holy Spirit. We saw it just as he did to us. There's no difference. And then he goes on, he kind of twists a little bit. So this is kind of like, like, like he's jabbing them a little bit. And then he twisted just a little bit in verse 9. He made no distinction between us and them. We're the same. There's nothing different. Cleansing their hearts by faith. Then he twisted just a little bit more. He says, why then? Why are you now testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? Peter says, hey, do y'all remember why we needed Jesus? He says, hey, let me ask you a question real quick. Pharisees over there. Why didn't we need Jesus? We needed Jesus. Why? Because we couldn't keep the law. None of us have. How many of you in here, he would ask, have ever kept the law completely and not a hand went up? It's like when Jesus has the woman caught in adultery and he says, all right, all you there without sin, y'all take the first stones and the stones drop. He says, listen, we couldn't hold it. Why are you going to make them do it? Verse 11. On the contrary, we believe we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. Verse 12, Then the whole assembly fell silent, and Barnabas and Paul began describing all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they were done speaking in verse 13, James responds and says, Brothers, listen to me. Now quickly, who's James? Jesus' brother, right? Let me ask you a quick question. If you need further proof that Jesus is the Messiah, is, is God, what would it take for your brother to convince you that he's God? All right? I mean, sure, nice guy, like him a lot, good friend, love him, family, but I mean, God? James was a guy who didn't believe Jesus at first. In fact, he was part of the family that said, actually went to Jesus and said, you're out of your mind, quit. And Jesus said, that's not my family anymore. Woo. 
So the only people that are my family are the ones that do the will of the Lord. After he raises again from the dead, James is like, I think he may be God. Then I'm going to start following him. In fact, James had risen to the point that he was now probably the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. The apostles were out spreading the gospel. James was the one preaching to the Jerusalem church. So James gets up and says, all right, listen to me. And it's kind of this idea. We've weighed the evidence. Everything's come in. This is when the judge says, here's my ruling. All right. Now he goes through and he quotes some stuff from the Old Testament. We're not going to read all that. But he gets down there to verse 19. And I love this. And it says, verse 19, Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who are turning to God. He says, we are not going to make it any more difficult for them to come to the faith. Now what's interesting is, by the way, there cannot, there's not a better statement from a church about what they're trying to do than that. We're not going to make it difficult for people wanting to turn to God. So we are saying, what he says basically is, we want to remove any barriers that may be there. So we're not going to ask them to do anything else other than believe in Jesus. Turn to God. Trust Him. That means we're not going to ask Him to change the way they dress, the way they eat necessarily. We're going to talk about a, in just a moment something, a little, that he says. We're not going to change their lifestyle completely. We're not going to make them move. We're not going to make them get circumcised. They're not going to do any of that. We're just going to say, if you want to believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus. And that's enough. Now, when I talked about those two sides of what people think the church is for, what it falls in really is those people that are all about truth. You know, that we have to believe the truth. And it's only people that follow Jesus like Jesus prescribed, even though it's really how we think Jesus prescribed. That's truth. And then you have the other people that say anybody can come. That's grace. And the problem is churches try to balance truth and grace. But the Bible never says to balance them. It says to give fullness of both. In fact, it says Jesus in the first Book of first chapter of John says that Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. It's both of them together. And what James is going to say is, listen, we're not going to put anything on them. It's going to be all grace all the time. Then he says, but we need to tell them a couple of things. All right? So in verse 20 he says, but instead, this is what we're going to write them. To abstain from things polluted by idols... From sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. And your first comment is, those last two are fine with me, alright? And that seems kind of weird stuff, but here's what's going on there, alright? It's really two commandments. All you got to do is follow Jesus, and in following Jesus, this is what we're going to ask you to do. Now, I think this is interesting. He doesn't say, and in following Jesus, make sure you read your Bible every day. And in following Jesus, make sure that you're praying at least 30 minutes a day. And in following Jesus, make sure that you're going to church every week. He says, in following Jesus, first of all, be sensitive to the Jewish people around you. That's what all that stuff about food to idols. Like Paul would later say, there's no such thing as idols. So food dedicated to idols, any different than regular food. But because there are people that might think that, just don't eat it. So don't eat the food that's been sacrificed to idols, all right? And Jews have a problem with anything that's been strangled or anything's still got blood in it. So, so don't, just don't do that. And then their culture, I know this is going to be foreign to us, was immersed in sexual immorality. Everywhere you looked, sexual immorality was rampant. There were people who 
worshipped that way, when you went to some of their churches, it was a completely different worship service than we have. And he says, just don't do that. That's it. Two rules. How many commandments are there? Ten. How many rules were there? Six, twelve, thirteen, somewhere around there. He says two. And they're not really stringent rules. They're just kind of, hey, don't do this. He didn't give up truth, but he showed tons of grace. They get a group together. They send the letter back to the people and say, hey, this is what we want to tell you. This is what we're going to do. Um, we're going to skip ahead in the story. You can put the next verse up, John. Skip ahead in the story. And it says, then, being sent off, they went down to Antioch. That's where this controversy was really boiling. They got the assembly together, and they got the letter, and they said, we're about to read it. Now, there were some nervous people in the church that day. I mean, there are, there are some weeks when I make you a little uncomfortable. This was like... I don't know that I want to read it. In fact, honey, you just go on in. I'll sit out in the car. You let me know what they say. All right? Surgery, no surgery on the table here. Verse 31. When they read it, they rejoiced. Understatement. Because of its encouragement. Now, here's the deal for us, all right? If we're going to be a church, and I don't mean a building, and I don't mean a group of people meeting together talking about the Bible, I'm talking about the church as Jesus intended. A group of people called out from society for the purpose of telling other people about Jesus. If that's who we're going to be, then we're going to have to be all about reaching the people Jesus intends for us to reach. And to do that, there are three things that we could easily drift into that we have to avoid. The first is we have to avoid drifting the people here versus the people outside. That's hard. You know why? Because I like you. I like hanging out with you. I like talking with you. I like getting together with you. I like eating the food you cook, all right, when we get together. I like you. I like this church. I like the people in this church. We have really nice facilities to do things with people in this church. We have great Sunday school classes with people. I enjoy getting here and singing. We have a great facility to do that. But the moment we focus inward, we lose the mission for which we were called. The second thing, we have to avoid the drift towards policy and away from people. Policies aren't all bad, but just when they make us not think about people, they're not good. So... Well, I'm sorry, we can't help you. We've got a policy for that. Just means, I don't want to talk to you. Here's the last thing. This kind of goes back to last week. We must avoid the drift towards maintaining and away from advancing. I asked a question last week, and it's the question that has haunted me, continues to, and I hope haunts this church in the days ahead. And that is, are we maintaining an institution or are we propelling a movement of God? My prayer is, my feeling is, my thought is that we are moving much closer to propelling a movement for God. But we need you to be a part. You're here today and you're a guest and you're looking for a place that is intentional and desires to be something more than just a place where people get together. Something more than just a social environment, but somewhere that is intended to take the gospel of Jesus, to mean something more in our lives, to be about a mission that is greater than we can imagine. Then I would invite you to think about coming and joining and being a part of what we're doing. If you're a part of our church, you've been here, maybe you've been here for a long time, and you've been one of those people that has been happy to maintain, 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 protect, 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 meet 
budget, meet budget, take care of the stuff, make sure we don't lose it, make sure the buildings are taken care of. Let's don't worry about outside until we get our house in order. And today, you say, Lord, I'm ready to go, to move, to push forward. Just a moment, we're going to have time of invitation. I'm going to stand down here at the front. Jeff's going to lead us in, some, in a song. All I'm going to ask is, if there's any reason that you feel that the Lord is saying, you need to move, you need to pray, you need to go talk to the pastor, whatever it is, I'm just going to ask you to do whatever God calls you to do. Maybe it's for the first time. Tori, who is so excited about giving her life to Jesus, for the first time, you want to do that. And you've thought that there is a list of things that you have to clean up before you ever come to Jesus. Can I tell you today? There's not. It's a simple thing. Believe in Jesus. Trust Him. Maybe today you say, for the first time, I'm ready to do that. Maybe it's, hey, listen, I want to be a part of a church that's moving forward. I want to be a part of that. Today's the day you need to do that. I'm just going to ask you to do whatever the Lord asks you to do. Do you pray with me?